Last week, we started the second half of Ephesians. We said that uh, after Paul laid out the foundation, chapters one through three, of who we are in Christ, after he's described our identity in Christ, chapters four through six turn uh, a bit more practical in emphasizing this is how we live in light of that identity. This is our practice in Christ. And so we're rising above ground. We've, we've spent um, about 21 messages on the root system Uh, figuring out how we're nourished, how we're given life, and now we're seeing how the church of Jesus Christ, this outgrowth of being rooted and established in him, starts to look, how it starts to act. Um, Paul starts with this challenge, chapter four, verse one. Live a life worthy of the calling you have received. But we said last week, this is a striking exhortation to start with because who among us is worthy? The answer is none. The only one who is worthy is the lamb. Revelation gives us a picture who is worthy. The lamb looking as if it had been slain, Jesus, because he has been slain. He did give his life as a ransom for many. And so worthy living means trusting in and imitating the humility of the Savior. That's the first thought Paul goes to in verse 2. And that attitude of the heart, I am empty in my sin, but in Christ, I am filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. It's the language he uses to close out his prayer in chapter three. That gospel identity enables us to live as Paul continues to describe in verses two and three, being completely humble and gentle, being patient, bearing with one another in love, and today's focus, keeping the unity of the spirit. So we're going to read, starting back in verse 1, and include through verse 6 this morning. Listen carefully. These are God's words. As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is God's word. Let's pray. We ask you, one God, three persons, who have revealed to us through one spirit this one hope that we have, Speak freshly through your word. Speak across 2,000 years between Paul's writing to this church and enable us to hear, to see with the eyes of our hearts, to to listen with the, the depths of our being as you speak through Paul to us here today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we'll ask two questions to walk us through this section of uh, the beginning of chapter four. First, maintain or attain. Before I explain what I mean by those two uh, terms, let me, let me ask you to think about what it looks like to taste unity in your everyday life. Maybe your team in the office um, has its issues and it is a ton of work for you as a, as a manager or as a team member to build any sense of we, 
to encourage people to row in the same direction, to, to, to row with rhythm so that you're not zigzagging through projects. Or perhaps you're starting a new high school sports season and you've graduated a few seniors. You don't know what the makeup of this team is going to be uh, because some young freshmen are trying to make their statement wondering if they're going to make the team, and everyone else has developed over the offseason, and it takes the entire preseason and maybe a few key losses in your regular season to begin to figure out who belongs on the court, who should play what position, how do you work together so that you're actually a team tasting a bit of unity. A third context would be relational, and we might turn way back into the first couple of pages of the Bible in Genesis chapter two, God lays, us the, God lays out this picture for us with Adam and Eve of marriage. We read that a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And that's not just merely a physical thing. It's a body and soul oneness that God intends. And yet lots of couples would say that Discord and enmity describe the two rather than oneness. And some of the pain of a difficult marriage is the grief at the unity that God intends but is nowhere to be found. It's the difference in expectations and reality. Those pictures of battling for unity Help us understand Paul's urging here in Ephesians chapter four, which we could call a a recipe for church growth, not adding to numbers, but growing in maturity and depth. Last week, we saw that Paul's calling, his language regarding calling is passive. Um, Verse one, the calling you have received. Verse four, just as you were called, we added Romans chapter eight, verse 28, who have been called. It's passive because it's something God has given to you. You haven't done anything to earn it or deserve it or to accomplish it. And that fits with Paul, what Paul has already said back in chapter two. Um, salvation is a gift of grace so that no one can boast. It is not something you've figured out through your wisdom and ingenuity and skill. So we're putting all, all kinds of pieces together uh, this, this morning. Living a life worthy of the calling you have received means realizing that everything that you have has been given by God to you. How can you boast? You were empty, dead in sin, but God in Christ filled you to the measure of his fullness, end of chapter three, which puts an end um, to hostility through the blood of Christ. That's what chapter two was emphasizing to us. Who you now are is all of Christ. And that feeds all humility, verse two of our text this morning. We covered that last Sunday. We're gonna keep coming back to it this morning. It puts you into the same position of dependence upon God as everyone else. That's the source of unity of the spirit that's given to God's people. That explains Paul's language in verse three. Make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Notice he doesn't say, make every effort to generate, to create, to figure out unity. He says, keep. And keep means you already have. Don't lose it. Maintain it, we might say, in verse three. But then down in verse 13, Paul says something that seems very different. 
um, about unity. He says, and we're just going to uh, glance at a couple of dynamics here, and then over the next three Sundays, we'll unpack um, the next section that includes verse 13. But there Paul says something very different about unity. He says, uh, mid-sentence, until we all reach or attain to unity in the faith. So is he saying, keep what you've been given through the spirit, through the blood of Christ, or is he saying, attain to what you don't yet have? And as is so often the case in scripture, in the, the mystery of the gospel that is not like anything else that we experience, the answer is both. Paul is saying, on one hand, maintain, verse three, keep the unity that the, the Spirit has provided. Why the Spirit? The, the Spirit's the one who shows you how this is accomplished. The Spirit is the one who's always pointing, shining his spotlight onto the cross, uh, showing you what Jesus has done. But Paul's also saying at the same time, there's more work to be done. Not to say that was not enough and you need to add your piece to it, but to say that that reality that you've been given, keep the unity, maintain what you already have, requires the effort to make that unity much more visible in your life, to uh, work it more deeply into the fabric of relationships and families and marriages in the community, in the home, in the church, in the workplace, attain to what you don't yet have. It's both. And Paul's language in verse three is down to earth, it's pretty realistic because striving for any measure of that unity in the workplace, in the home, in, in friendships, even within the church, requires hard work. He says, make every effort. It doesn't come naturally and easily because of our sin. Uh, so th- this is what we're trying to circle back and emphasize over these two weeks. This is how uh, the vertical, the calling you have received, passive, from God, feeds the horizontal, which becomes more active. Make every effort. Attain to the unity in the faith. Here's how maintain stimulates attain. If this calling is a gift, if Christ has accomplished what you and I could never accomplish, and he offers you the benefits of his work, access by faith, if he has reconciled sinners to a holy father and reconciled enemies to one another horizontally, there's nothing to boast about. Christ has done it all. We we don't merit, we don't deserve, we're not worthy of that kind of gift. And so the only way you can live a life worthy of this calling is through humility and gentleness to realize um, If I have life, it's only because of the rescue that Jesus has provided. But too often, the reality instead looks more like this. Romans 12, verse three, we quoted this last week. You think of yourself more highly than you ought. You look in the mirror and you see more than is actually there. You take credit for who you are, for what you've accomplished, and your focus, little by little, becomes more and more on self. James chapter four points to the source of disunity as desires that battle within you, you desire, but you do not have, and he adds, so you kill. 
And he's not necessarily talking about homicide here. You and I can kill with our attitudes, with bitterness and resentment and envy and absolutely with words. Why does it all happen? Why, why does disunity become a, um, a snowball effect and grows out of proportion to the circumstances around us? Because um, you've been wronged. You've been insulted. You've been disrespected. And when self is at the center of the world, you breed disunity in marriages, in the workplace, and yes, here in the church of Jesus Christ. But when you realize you're the wronger, you're the insulter, you are the disrespecter, and not just of fellow human beings, but of the king and creator himself, everything changes. The only way to maintain or keep the unity of the spirit is to constantly remember that you have nothing, but in Christ, he has given you everything. The only way to maintain unity of the spirit is to constantly remember that you were an enemy in your sin, but in Christ, God has drawn you near through the power of his blood and made you son or daughter. He's adopted you into his very family. That's why living a life worthy of the calling you have received starts with all humility. What have I done? Nothing. Who am I in Christ? Everything. And so then when you work and you play and you interact with people who are very different from you, instead of those differences leading to disagreement, leading to hostility and disunity, they become so much less important than the unity we share as lost but now found people as blind but now seeing people, as dead but now made alive sinners, sort of like strangers uh, from all kinds of backgrounds and nationalities hugging and kissing and laughing with each other after Sully successfully landed the plane on the Hudson. Differences melted away in the face of overwhelming joy at life. That brought unity in the midst of differences. So as different as we all are here at Grace Redeemer Church in skin color, in uh, perhaps native tongues, familiar tra- uh, family traditions, habits, some secondary values are different. And, and by the way, we said this early on in the sermon series, Paul's writing a letter to Ephesians, the Ephesians. Ephesus was a cosmopolitan global city center sitting at the intersection between two continents. It was... It was uh, you know, a hub of interstates, we might say today, and, and commerce and, and a, uh, an international airport. And you better believe that he was speaking to people who had very different kinds of folks within their walls, which always means all kinds of sources and possibilities for tension and disunity. And into that kind of diverse community, to this people of God, Paul says, Keep what you already have, maintain it, and attain to something you don't yet have. Bring it to the next level. Massage it into the very fabric of church relationships. The second question we might ask to get to the next level is what brings oneness? What brings oneness? On the backs of our U.S. coins, is imprinted the first unofficial motto of the United States, which in Latin is e pluribus unum, out of the many, one. 
right? It was originally intended to talk about the 13 colonies and the, the union of these uh, 13 different um, er- areas on the eastern seaboard. But it, it's got all kinds of application. Lee earlier uh, read from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, one body, many parts. This is what Paul is uh, unpacking here in Ephesians 4 as well. And in a, in a diverse church like Grace Redeemer Church, we, we need to say something important, that unity is not uniformity. Unity is not all, all of us speaking and acting and looking from the same mold. Unity of the Spirit does not mean dismissing or setting aside the unique personality differences that we bring to the table. Here's what Paul tells us about the unity of the Spirit at one level. And I'm going to borrow these C's from uh, Pastor John Piper. Okay? Down in verse 13, uh, again, just glancing ahead at this, um, Paul mentions unity in the knowledge of the Son of God. And so there's common convictions, there's common beliefs about who Jesus is and what he's done. There's a doctrinal faithfulness that unites followers of Jesus and makes us one. The same verse earlier mentions unity in the faith, and we could call that common confidence in Christ. Together as a family, we trust in Christ in all circumstances, we pray for each other. We encourage each other. We, we, we apply scripture when someone else is, is so broken in, in pain that they can't see the truth of God at work in them. And then lastly, if we turn back to Ephesians chapter two, where Paul's painting this picture of hostility being brought to an end because of the, the blood of Jesus. And when we add Paul's encouragement in our text this morning, verses two and three, we see that there's a common care for each other. So uh, these are the three C's I'm borrowing from John Piper. Unity means that we share belief about Jesus. Unity means uh, we trust in him together. And unity means we care for each other with, quote, humility and gentleness, being patient, bearing with one another in love. And on top of all that, Paul then goes to verse four and makes seven oneness statements piled one on top of the other. I'll just highlight a few of these this morning to to give us a sample. First, he says, verse four, one body. It's one of Paul's favorite analogies to use to illustrate what the church should look like and how it should function. And it's not a, as rich as this imagery is, it's, it's not a technical theological term he uses. It's the common word for the physical body. And he uses it so that every one of us can easily understand what the church should be like. We have bodies. We know how they function. Um, This one body, he says, has one head, verse 15, who is Christ's, but it has many parts. The parts aren't just committed to each other as, as in some sort of voluntary union. You know, we, we, we all show up on a Sunday morning, we all serve together, and we're here because we want to. There, there's a richer organic unity to the body than just that. We're not just committed to each other, we're knitted together with each other. That's a, a word that brings to mind Psalm 139, where uh, David the psalmist is praying to God and says, you knit me together in my mother's womb. You knit me together. The, the organic unity there um, 
is pictured when you have the privilege of looking at a sonogram. It's a, a grainy glimpse. It's confusing to the untrained eye. What, are, what am I looking at here? But um, it's a window into this miracle of sperm and egg, two things that have become one entity, now growing in perfect organic unity. One person, many parts, two arms, two legs, a nose, two ears. One thing that always got me when I had the privilege of looking at our children in the womb was um, uh, realizing, I couldn't tell, but the, the uh, um, ultrasound tech uh, could, could point out you know, the little fingers, and at that stage, fingernails developing. An amazing miracle. A picture of one body, many parts, all growing and maturing together. One spirit, Paul goes to, verse four. We've said this already. This is a kind of unity that we can't just make. We, we can't come up with it. It's a gift that we're called to keep. It comes from God, and it's uh, called the unity of the spirit because the spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the one who supernaturally brings it about. Um, there are so, so many kinds of connections among the people of God, so many tastes of unity that otherwise are just not possible to explain. Um, over the years, I've shared little snippets of this. I had the privilege um, way back in year 2000, I go back that far to, to give you a sense of the imprint on, on my mind and heart. Uh, in the summers of 2000 and 2001, I had the privilege of leading missions trips down to Buenos Aires. And I still remember names and faces from 18 plus years ago. We were uh, going on 10-day trips to partner with the local church in their outreach to their community. And um, through all these years, I can remember not only names and faces, but also the frustration of wishing that the gift of tongues would just descend upon me, specifically the tongue of Spanish, uh, so I could converse with people. You know, we were longing to get to know each other, but we just couldn't because of the language barrier. Um, And yet, despite differences, there was this bond that made it clear that we were all adopted into the same family. We could genuinely call each other brothers and sisters. We were different culturally. We were different um, racially and ethnically. Most members of this church were struggling to stay above the poverty line. Their day-to-day struggles were not something that our church team of 17, 18 uh, young adults could could, uh, relate to. I'll never forget asking um, the second summer where Antonio was, a kid who had made an impression on me the first summer, and having my heart just break when I heard the simple reason why he couldn't join us on the weekend camp out in the country, only chance for this inner city kid to get out and run around on grass, the reason being he didn't have sneakers. He couldn't come. The unity of the Spirit was such that at the end of only 10 days, we held hands, we sung, we prayed, and we wept. It's a picture of Paul and the Ephesian elders from Acts chapter 20. We wept knowing that we would not see each other until glory. But we wept in joy having tasted this unity that is only explainable because the Holy Spirit supernaturally knit our hearts together in a short amount of time. It's the same unity of the Spirit that enables our session, our board of elders, 
with a Chinese guy and a Korean guy and a German guy and a Swiss guy and a half Dutch, half lots of different things guy and uh, retired now, but uh, also a full-blooded Chilean and an Indian guy. Did I mention you, Donald? Um, the, the unity of the Spirit is the only explanation that produces in us as a group of elders, this kind of joy of being together, this, this kind of depth of union, of, of purpose in our minds and in our hearts, this, this rich camaraderie. We used to have session meetings downstairs in our living room, and our, my family would, would complain the next morning how, how loud our laughter was. Uh, yes, we laugh at session meetings. We take care of serious things. We also have a great time together. And um, the, the differences of race and cultural habits and uh, even our accents and even our, you know, what, what aspects of the Christian world we've come from, they all melt away. Because our identity that is more root, our identity is more rooted in Christ than it is in anything of nationality and ethnic background and skin color. That kind of unity happens to you. It's a gift of grace, and you're called to keep it, maintain it. One more oneness statement. We're just glancing at a few here, verse 5. Simply one Lord, Paul writes. When first century Christians in the Roman Empire made that simple statement, Jesus is Lord, they were also making the statement, whether they spoke it or not, Caesar is not. Because the, the early Christians were, were saying there is one God. Verse five, one Lord, one King, one being to whom all of my allegiance belongs. And that was enough to lose your head over or to be nailed to a Roman cross, more likely. The, the word for Lord is the Greek word kurios. And it was used to translate the Hebrew personal name for the God of Abraham, which is Yahweh. And so Jewish Christians in the, in the first century, um, Jewish background believers, I should say, when they said Jesus is Lord, they were making a very powerful statement identifying Jesus of Nazareth with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They were saying Jesus is the fully divine God of all creation. I worship him. What does all this mean? If you want peace on earth, goodwill to men, a very Christmassy, uh, straight from uh, Luke chapter two, shows up on greeting cards and banners and the like. If that's what you want during this upcoming holiday season and always, if you want harmony in your relationships, if you want neighbors to wave and be polite and people to let you go first and nobody to honk at you and cut you off on Route 4, if you want, globally speaking, the end of war and hostility between nations, the solution is not right politics. In the kingdom of God, may I be blunt, so what? if the makeup of Congress does not fit your political ideals or the, the balance of the Supreme, uh, Supreme Court or the person who sits in the Oval Office in the kingdom of God, so what? 
Do you think that the sovereign God of this universe is limited in his application of resurrection power by, by who is in power? By who's making law or judging law or executing law? Nor is the solution to our desire for unity found in science and technology. Some invention that's right around the corner that's going to make it possible. That's a pipe dream. Nor is the solution something humanity can just find within ourselves. You know, that is becoming more and more of a common religion. And I call that deliberately a belief system that shows up in pop psychology that shows up on talk shows, that is underneath so many of the stories that Hollywood is powerfully telling and um, getting into your imagination, that you have everything it takes. It's very Disney-esque. You know, it's, it, the power's within you. Just draw it out and maximize your potential. No, the church, according to the scriptures, the body of Christ, the one body with him as the head, the church is where the solution to disunity is revealed by God through this truth. And the church is the people through whom the solution is applied. Why? Because we've been given unity of the spirit. Peace has been earned for us through the blood of Jesus and it is granted to us accessed only by faith. One body with one head, Jesus, looking ahead with one faith to one hope, the hope of resurrection, because Jesus himself is the risen one, and he promises his people the same glory. Let's pray toward that end. Lord, there is so much strife, stand prayed already. There's so much disunity at a global level and at an individual level in every home, in every office, in every school classroom, and yes, within your church, Lord. It's not to be because you've made peace between God and mankind and you call us to extend peace to one another and to keep what we already have, not to lose it and to grow it, mature it, that all the world may know that Jesus is one Lord and is the source of the one hope that we have. We pray this in his name. Amen.